Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about Paper Girls. This comic book series by writer Brian K. Vaughn and artist Cliff Chang started in 2015 as a story about four pre-teen girls coming of age in the 1980s. We look into how the creators produced the book while examining their skepticism of nostalgia in a post-Stranger Things world. You can go to patreon.com slash supercontext where you can find the entry for this episode, leave a comment, or you can write us an email at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. What do you remember from when you were 12? Hey, Chris, what do you remember from when you were 12? Charlie, I saw this question in the notes, and I got to say, you're going to regret asking it because... Uh, I already have, yes. Because <laughs> honestly, 12 was a pretty bad time for me. You know, that was that was uh, the height of getting bullied. That was the uh, height of domestic violence in my household. Uh-huh. Um, it was the height of my mother's drinking. And uh, she didn't go into rehab for the first time until I was 13. Uh, my brother and sister were two. And I was 12. So, yeah, it was that was a rough time. The things I remember positively about that year are that that is the year that I really started finding uh, escapism in pop culture. So like comics and D&D started to become really important for me when I was 12. Um, And like uh, something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today, I rode my bike everywhere. Yeah. I started thinking about 12 and I realized that I could not picture it I was unable to really pull up what it was like when I was 12 I had to actually go and check the notes you know Mm -hmm. like do the math like what year was I 12 okay and then I went looking and I read several sort of here's 1980 and what do you think you know to see what I remembered not like oh this happened but what did I remember Uh, the challenger blew up Nintendo was released. Uh, we Are the World happened. Uh, Back to the Future and Goonies came out. Dire Straits Money for Nothing was released. And by that I mean the video for Money for Nothing came out. The PMRC really started getting out there into the world. Uh, that Tears for Fears record came out. That was a big deal. And uh, Dare to be Stupid by Weird Al Yankovic. So, so this is interesting. Like you measure your history my relation to yeah yeah my household had no sort of like markers there wasn't any i don't remember it's not when the divorce happened it's not when someone got hurt it's not when someone was sick um i don't really have a i don't have a lot of clear memories of the day-to-day you don't so like when you were 12 you don't remember like what school you were at or what classes you were in or who your friends were. If you say when you were 12, what was going on? I'm like, I don't know. Okay, let's see. So I was 12 in this year. I still don't know. I guess 12 is sixth grade. 
I remember sixth grade. Wow. Okay. I remember that school. Yeah. But only because there's like a marker on it, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. I can say who my teacher was in the sixth grade. That but... might be a good thing. I mean, like, consider that all of my memories about that were totally were tragic. I think it's not good or bad so much as it's indicative of my life. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What does that mean? That your life mm-hmm. is just going by and like you're, you're, it's, it's relatively easy and therefore you're not remembering any of it? I think that year for sure. Yeah. Okay. You know, compared to, I mean, what did you say? Like, oh, you're going to regret this. Here are the things yeah. that were going on. For me, I'm like, no, that was cool. Now, if you say, what was 97 like? I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. You know, or, or 2001. I have mm-hmm. these, you know, I have some traumatic experiences that allow me to kind of place things a little more clearly. Although even there, I'm doing it by year, yeah. you know, not by age. And, and I mean, I was, I knew you in 2001. A lot of the stuff that happened to you in 2001 was external. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I talk a good game about being sad, melancholy, or, <laughs> you know, a difficult person, but more than anything, I was, uh, kind of a nerdy introvert and I didn't have a framework for trying to figure out who I was. I had a framework for trying to figure out what the world was. That's what I was concerned with. And so I was very selfish and uh, outwardly concerned. So maybe weird combo. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing to realize about yourself though. But I'm think, trying to think about it in terms of paper girls, uh, anatomy, wait, anatomy doesn't work, I guess characters. Uh, so that I'm more like Mac and you're more like Aaron. Maybe I, I don't recognize the way any of our main characters in paper girls thought of their lives. Yeah. But that's maybe partly cause I don't really recognize what I thought in my life back then. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good way to kind of start this off because I think this episode is a sequel to our Stranger Things episode. It's totally a sequel. It's not a sequel. It's a remix. It's totally <laughs> a, a complimentary uh, and and um, in some way redundant episode about 80s nostalgia Yeah, with a completely different viewpoint. Yeah, so we did an episode probably in the first year of doing the show on the first season of Stranger Things. That show is now it has it's in 3 seasons in and it has a fourth coming up, I think. They just released Leading like a teaser for the season, fourth one. Yeah. Um, teaser came out and revealed that the thing that I said if they do it, I will not watch it. They uh-huh. did it. Yeah, okay. Um, well, you also canceled your Netflix subscription, so it's not, yeah. I mean, you pretty much in decided that already in preparation to refuse to watch Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I remember that episode correctly, we spent a ton of time talking about the commodification of nostalgia in, um, popular culture today, especially targeted at our age group and using the eighties as this weird, like magical, uh, thunder shirt. Right. And and we also talked about the sort of Zizekian removal of context from nostalgic markers, which makes it enjoyable to return to your childhood as long as you don't remember the, bad the idea that you were about to be nuclear, nuclear annihilated 
mm. or beaten to death mm. by your parents. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I want to stick with this this possibility that Aaron's a good example of what you're talking about because um, throughout the series of Paper Girls, Aaron has these nightmares, and her nightmares always feature uh, like important figures from the news in the 80s not yeah, people she knows was a big part of that like and there's the a ronald reagan disaster. one as well yeah 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 um so we jumped in with both feet and the reason i said when you were 12 will become even more apparent as we get deeper into the episode but let's talk about what paper girls the subject of today's episode is so Paper Girls is a comic book series uh, just finished. It ran from 2015 until 2019. It's created by Brian K. Vaughn, Cliff Chang, uh, Matt Wilson, and I believe the letterer is Jared K. Fletcher. It's published by Image Comics, who we've covered in multiple episodes on this on this show. I think it's safe to say that Image is, uh, does a pretty good job of targeting like your and my interests. Yeah, and Image has the kind of um, corporate values and uh, general hands-off hands-offishness that uh, works well for the stuff you and I like. That's true too. Uh, for some people, for instance, like our see our episode on the divided states of hysteria, that hands-offishness is <laughs> it's is a, hard a word problem, to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. but and but and in other cases image, like this, it's a yeah. it's a benefit. If you look at Image Comics too. You can find a ton of stuff that you will not like. Oh, Even sure. If you're a big fan of Image Comics, like, oh, but this is not my thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a shotgun blast. They're basically like, let's see what sticks. Um, yeah. We'll we'll get to them later. Um, but if you haven't heard of Paper Girls, you're probably about to because it is being developed into a television series for Amazon as we speak. Um Brian Rafferty wrote a pretty good summary of what it's about in Wired magazine. And he says this, the setup of the book is simple until it isn't. On the morning after Halloween in 1988, a quartet of Cleveland Preserver delivery girls band together during their pre-dawn route in an effort to ward off the pranksters and creepos still hanging around from the night before. And essentially he goes on to introduce the four different characters uh, and then I guess like the other thing we should throw in there is like that then they run into crazy sci-fi weird stuff. Yeah. When you first told me about this comic book st- uh, series, you said it's about um, paper girls instead of paper boys, mm. girls who are delivering uh, the daily paper. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I might check that out. And then a little while later, I think there was something about, yeah, you know, I'm not really thinking about naturalistic series right now i'm kind of looking for escapism and uh-huh. like oh holy shit didn't i tell you <laughs> you know the thing about paper girls for me is that i like it a lot and that's not going to be disguised in this uh, episode but uh i think brian k vaughn and cliff chang do such a good job of rendering the personalities of the four main characters that in a way you almost forget that it's about like time travel and science fiction hijinks yeah. and that like it's more just about like the lives of these four girls and how they're responding to those events in a way it feels like a throwback to those movies of the time like yeah. goonies that it clearly references or steven spielberg movies because it is very human it's very immediate it is very in their heads in fact let me read the rest of rafferty's description because he does give us these like 
capsule characters of each right? of them. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, the good egg outsider plagued by Krista McAuliffe nightmares. Mac, the cigarette dangling, take charge tough from a beyond broken home. KJ, the upper class smart kid who wields a field hockey stick. And Tiffany, the adopted straight shooter who worries about the fate of their hard earned, much loved walkie talkies. That really does sum them up in the first 10 pages. And Mm. then everything goes much wider than those character traits. But they stay themselves through the whole run, which is great. That's true. That is true. Um, Did you have a paper route? No, no. Okay. That would involve going outside, Chris. I didn't do that. (laughs) I didn't have my own paper route, really. But, um, like I occasionally helped friends who had them. Um, and, and like mainly it would be like mornings that were like really tough. We'd get up and like their parent would drive us and we would just jump out of the car and run up to the steps rather than ride our bikes. Um, but a lot of my friends had paper routes. I'm trying to think of the last time I saw a kid throw a paper onto a, a lawn or driveway been years years and years and years yeah i think it's definitely a thing i mean it's probably not financially uh sound for 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 newspapers anymore the ones that i've seen in the last decade have been adults who are driving around at like five or six in the morning and they just put them in the mailbox yeah so here's my very uh immediate theory when my wife and i moved into the neighborhood that we're moved into now There was a lot of talk uh, prompted by our two-year-old. Wow, you know, this neighborhood just doesn't have many kids in it. We're so glad that parents are starting to move back in. Mm -hmm. So for some stretch of time, this neighborhood had no teenagers in it. Mm -hmm. So We we should also remind our audience here, you live in like the like slap, cookie cutter uh, suburban like idea of what a like an american neighborhood is so much so that they used it for stranger (laughs) things in the first season my house is in stranger things season one yes so there was a time when it would have been um not not only uneconomical but impossible to find the local kid with the, the bike who could handle all of say Gloucester park yeah. right, or Brockton yeah. Heights. Um, and I think that's different now, but the whole milk carton kid thing and the understanding of the world as a place you don't want your kid running around when they're young and alone. This is the thing a, that comes up a lot in the out. notes yeah. from Brian K Vaughn. Yeah, no, but when I think of like, uh, in my head, when I picture like the ideal neighborhood for a kid to deliver a newspaper and it's, it's your neighborhood. Oh, yeah, totally. Was Surely yeah. in the 80s, there must have been kids riding around at six in the morning on their bikes. I bet you there were. But yeah. then clearly in the 90s and 2000s, <laughs> that that neighborhood, yeah. people started saying, where did all the kids go? We're all old people here. Yeah. OK. So let's start with Brian K. Vaughn. And the other thing I realized while doing the research for this episode is that once a year, we do an Alan Moore episode, we do a Grant Morrison episode, and we do a Warren Ellis episode, and it seems like we're ending up doing a Brian K. Vaughn episode, too, because this is the third one that we've done. Yeah. We have found some things we like, 
and we're sort of sticking with them <laughs> over the past four years. So Vaughn, if you haven't heard our previous two episodes about him, he's an American comic book writer. He's also a television writer. He's known for writing comics like Why the Last Man, Ex Machina, Runaways, Pride of Baghdad, Saga, the TV show Lost, and the TV adaptation of Under the Dome. Uh, we have covered Pride of Baghdad and Saga on this show. And looking at the notes here, uh, almost all of these other ones are either have either been turned into TV shows or are in the process of being turned into TV shows. There's a Why the Last Man show in production. Uh, they just announced that Oscar Isaac is going to be in an Ex Machina thing, whether it's a movie or a TV show, which is everybody's like, oh, it's so ironic because he was already in a movie called Ex Machina. Um <laughs> And, Irony is not a coincidence. And there's a Runaways TV show on Hulu now that yeah. uh, has come out since we, we did our Saga episode. So we have um, a lot of information from Vaughn and Chang uh, looking back over their four-year project. So we're going to talk not only about how did this get started, but what they're saying about it now that it's complete. Yeah. So to begin with, Let's give Vaughn sort of the intro to this. He says, I won't speak for Cliff, but I'm just happiest letting the work speak for itself first and foremost. I find I am such an ill-suited advocate for my own work. I'm terrible at describing it. It's hard to do. Secondly, interviews just don't feel like a useful promotional tool. I read something because two or three of my friends recommend it to me. I just miss Cliff, he jokes. So this is a nice opportunity to do a post-mortem on the book that we talked about very little in public. Yeah, so this is interesting. That is the longest interview in our research, and it's from the Comics Journal. Uh, but I would say that there's five interviews that covered this material that we consulted for this episode. And Vaughn claims we don't do a lot of interviews. And as I was pulling the research together, I was like, man, they talked about this book a lot. Well, like way more than I remember Saga lost and under the dome. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he was not on the PR circuit the way he might've been before. That's I think probably, that's probably what he's yeah. comparing it to. Yeah. Um, Chang says something that I found really interesting. I think it's hard to promote a book when you can't really talk about it. I mean, before it's come out. So they had a story that was a surprise. You know, there's lots of twists and turns and, and reveals. So you can't really say, oh, well, here's the whole story. Yeah. And they were also creating a, a limited series, a mini series with a defined beginning and an end. So he was saying, look, we promoting the book by going and doing interviews was just not going to work for us. And I had this thought, like, how old is the PR circuit? There's mm. only It's only recently that we started sending artists, creators, writers out on the road to make them talk about their stuff. Well, I would say for stuff like room after room. Yeah. I would say for stuff like this, it's probably 20 years old. Um, because I remember in the nineties, like for comics, when you wanted to learn more about like why creators did what they did when they were creating something, you didn't have a lot of avenues. There was wizard mm -hmm. magazine, which is kind of, a joke nowadays um and com the comics journal and the comics journal wasn't easy to hunt down that was a pretty rare artifact at least for me um there but now there's like two dozen sites that are covering yeah. pop culture and geek matters or whatever 
But you say two dozen. There's also a ton of people who are just trying to fill the 24 hours of news, the, uh, you know, seven posts a day or, or whatever. Uh, but then let's go back to Vaughn on this. He says, I think for an ongoing comic series, 99% of your publicity work is having a great first issue. Most people, if they read a great first issue and they love it, you can sustain that. That's so much more important than having a strong social media presence. I find that stuff barely moves the needle. I, re- I really want to stop and unpack this for a second because I think this is this is a gem of wisdom from Brian K. Vaughn that other comic book creators should pay attention to. Um, I find that when I read first issues, not just from Image, but other independent publishers, they are not of the quality of the of the first issues that I used to see on the stands 10, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. What I mean by that is they're not, they, they haven't been constructed in such a way as Vaughn is talking about here that it's it pulls you in, it hooks you so hard that you it generates enough goodwill to get you to read at least another five or six yeah. issues, right? Which a, tr- it has a trade. To do. Yeah, mm-hmm. which it has to do because there's so much to uh, peel through, right? Yeah, and I, I think instead, a lot of creators I see spend a lot of time on social media. Um, and, and I don't mean this in like a bad derogatory way, but just like engaging with social media and building a an audience as an influencer rather than doing the thing that they're supposed to be an influencer of. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thing I want to pull from all of this is we've got Vaughn, the writer of this project, and he's talking in terms of um, promotional tours and like the uh, corporate PR, and also in terms of, of uh, being a TV writer. You know, this is a a guy who's been doing it a long time, who's worked in television, has had his stuff bought or been sniffed around to be made into movies and television. Mm-hmm. And what he's landed on finally is most of this stuff doesn't matter. You know, there's a system where the first issue goes out into the world and that's what catches people. So what he ended up doing, of course, was he created a first issue of this limited run series that was nearly incomprehensible in terms of story and totally about character. Yeah. Um, but I would say Paper Girls number one did its job in that, like, I read it and I was like, oh, I'm on board. I mean. Yeah. I don't think it was bad. I'm just saying yeah. that that's what he went after. And and I also think, you know, we're going to see this play out in the numbers coming up. But, like, Paper Girls already had a tremendous amount of goodwill because both Vaughn and Chiang are really well-respected creators in the industry. And so just the very idea of the two of them working on something together was a, was a selling point for some people. Yeah. And they had worked together before a long time ago. And Vaughn knew that Saga was successful enough that he had a little bit of, he had a bump just from people knowing his name from mm. that in comics. That what they decided to do when they joined forces was what Vaughn calls... Uh, a weird personal offbeat book about their childhood. Yeah. So they seem to have a couple of different agendas in creating this book. And they, all of those kind of get pulled apart like spaghetti uh, during the course of these interviews. Um, You would think like 
I mean, I thought this when it first came out. I thought, oh, Vaughn saw how successful Stranger Things was and was like, <laughs> cool, I'm going to get in on that. I'll do my own version of that. Um, but he that never comes up here. Uh, he does talk about the influence of Steven Spielberg, um, but it seems to be more about him being a father and trying to understand himself as an adult trying to teach children how to be people and remembering his own childhood and and like the interactions with people that he had then well now i just had to check chris uh stranger things premiered in the summer of 2016 so if paper girls started in 2015 no one was saying oh is this going to be like stranger things when it started huh and it may have been that when they started doing these interviews they just, you know, people said, so Stranger Things, like, look, it, we started first. We don't need to get into this. That is interesting because I, uh, I got to be honest that, like, that's not how I remember it. But clearly that's how it played out. Uh, wow. That's weird. Okay. So, so it did come first. Yeah. It, um, I mean, if 2015 is correct. Yeah. Then. Well, we yes. should also consider that the, I mean, the the buildup to something like stranger things was already going on with things like super eight. Right. So, and, and you were thinking, Oh, this thing, stranger things is coming out. It's mm-hmm. got the Stephen King logo, but yeah, right. It's not Stephen King and it's not Netflix that Vaughn was all about. He okay. says, I worship Spielberg. Yeah. And the idea was basically back to the future. They wanted to do a story about kids from the 20th century that confronted their adult selves in the future. And that it wasn't like Marty McFly's world in Back to the Future 2, where there were flying cars and actual hoverboards. And he says, quote, but a future that's equally amazing and terrifying for many different reasons. Let me tell you something that I do remember about being around the age of 12. I totally thought hoverboards were a real thing when I saw Back to the Future 2. I thought that was a real technology, and I was like, okay, when are those going to hit Toys R Us? Now, I remember from a slightly younger age seeing ads for uh, Zips, the shoes Zips. Do you remember that? Are those the ones with wheels in them? No, these are just the, the ad campaign had kind of a bionic man feel to them you know okay. the kids put on the zips and then they're like wah, 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 oh they could wah. run fast yeah and when i got my zips i thought i was going to run faster <laughs> and i yeah. was really disappointed that they didn't do what they were supposed to do i think that's a part that we don't talk about from the 80s enough is that we weren't media literate as kids enough to know that the shit that was being told to us in the commercials <laughs> was uh was make-believe well you know there was a gatekeeper culture and we imagined that that applied to the advertisements. Yeah, yeah. Um, Vaughn also says that Paper Girls is him dealing with nostalgia, both in that he yearns for the past and that he's disgusted by where he came from, and he's trying to make sense out of it by being an adult now. Do you get a sense that where he came from, meaning Cleveland, or where he came from, meaning the late 80s, or... Or what? I think he means the context. So not just the place or the time, but also the culture, right? And like one of the significant things that comes up in the notes here that I think he he's talking about when he says disgusted is the like casual homophobia that was thrown around mm-hmm. when we were children. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and his last piece of like what he wanted to do with this book was to 
um, approach story from a completely different place than he was in Saga, uh, a space opera. They're both about childhood and parents and, well, parent-ish stuff and, you know, who are you? But he said he was going to do this um, natural, immediate, personal story, mm-hmm. you know, with giant robots and time travel. Yeah, you don't really get to the giant robots in like until like three quarters of the way through the series. But but yeah, like it's almost like he started off being like, eh, the budget for this will be small. And then like <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, screw it. Like, we'll just go go big. Now, Vaughn points out that Image Comics is part of why he could do Paper Girls. Not mm-hmm. that they said, oh, yeah, you can do it. But his idea of comics changed with his experience of uh, image comics. Mm-hmm. He says the artists and I share ownership and control of everything we do. Image can't really censor us or tell us what we can or can't print. They don't edit anything or take movie rights. They just publish comics. This experience has definitely changed the way I approach comic books. So this is something that we talked about with him in previous episodes. We've talked about with image in previous episodes that the way that their model is set up it's not like a traditional publisher where they go looking for an acquisition and then they um, develop the acquisition and own part of the acquisition and then publish it. Uh, they're unique in, in the sense that it, it is, as he as he says, like the, the way I understand it is basically like image pays for the printing and the distribution and maybe a little bit of marketing. And you are essentially paying them back for that after the, after the book comes out. And then everything else is yours afterwards. So it, it is as successful as you can make it be, not on how successful necessarily image can make it be, right? Uh, and Vaughn has come up with a really good model in that he and his creators behind the scenes split everything evenly. And then the book goes out and then he's already got TV ties he says in all these interviews, he's always like, oh, I never considered adapting it. And uh, <laughs> but then, you know, other than Saga, all of these things have been turned into TV or movies. Yeah. If we cut him some slack on that, you could say that when he says I didn't think about adapting it is that he tried not to make decisions, creative decisions based on whether it would work on TV. I think that's true. I think he thinks about the comic first. He doesn't think about how he could turn it into a pitch for a, a pilot. Yeah, because he's very aware of the environment, the comics environment that he's in and working in. He says, uh, I spent 10 years working on superhero comics, but it is sometimes frustrating that the medium of comics that is capable of doing anything is almost completely overrun with superhero stories. I think I do things better than superheroes. That's a very interesting sentence. It's a weird sentence. I think what he means is he the work that he does that isn't superhero based is better than his work that is superhero based. Yeah. But I like the idea of Vaughn being like, I actually do things better than superheroes. <laughs> I'm better than <laughs> Superman. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, he wanted out of this, uh, of this sort of locked in comics vibe mm. and he got it. Uh, he said, I was reading a lot of Berenstain bear books with my kids and the spooky old tree. This is the most wonderful, specific, out of nowhere. Uh, I knew you would love this part. I was like, this is written book. for Charlie. Yeah, totally. 
Um, so do you know that book, The Spooky, Spooky Old Tree? With I don't Berenstain know that Bears? one, but I know Berenstain Bears, yeah. The Spooky Old Tree. Oh, my God. Dude, you need to just go find the electronic version and read it immediately. Okay. Um, so these kids go and explore a spooky old tree. And as Vaughn says, one bear had a rope, one had a stick, and one had a light. I remember telling Cliff that they should each have their own totemic thing that they get to carry the paper girls that they get to carry with them out into the night. Aaron has a pocket knife. Uh, KJ has a hockey stick. Tiffany has the walkie talkies. Mm -hmm. Mac has a cigarette, I guess. Um, uh, They're not weapons. They're things that serve multiple purposes. Vaughn says, but they have to serve as weapons. It's such Mm -hmm. a strange time to think that we would send out 12 year old children at four in the morning to deliver bad news to creepy grown-ups. I couldn't picture letting my children do it. But if they did, they would go out armed. So let's stop for a second there. You've got kids. If if they came to you when they were 12 years old and were like, hey, uh, I want to earn, I don't know, $20 yeah, a right. week uh, delivering newspapers on the weekend, can I do that? So I was thinking about this. Um, I have a couple glib answers, and I'm going to try and avoid those. It's very hard for me to imagine being okay with any of these kids like riding off alone on their bicycle because they're so young right now. I, I would have to picture them at 12 to really be able to answer, but I don't know what my answer would be then either. It's It seems very scary, hmm. the idea that my kids will be out while I'm asleep. I had a parent say to me, oh, well, you know, eventually you start going to bed before they do. And I was like, whoa, no, no, that's bullshit. Because you got to make sure they're asleep before you fall asleep. And of course, I know. When do you think they're going to do the drugs and have the sex? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So uh, back to this. I mean, I would say I agree with Vaughn not being a parent. Like, it is fucking weird when you think about it (laughs) that our parents were just like, yeah, cool, whatever, go out there. (laughs) (laughs) especially like i mean i we know this now like the reason why parents are so protective now is because of the rise of i guess for lack of a better term like uh, violence against children you know i would say the understanding the rise of the understanding of violence against children and predatory folks yeah Um, yeah you know he, he talks about america being a car culture which then made me think of like that's my main fear I don't think they're going to get snatched. I know that that's a crazy, like, that's a crazy, horrible thing that happens very rarely. Mm-hmm. But what I am worried about, if they were riding their bikes in the dark, delivering papers, that one they of those nutcases that drives through my neighborhood would mow them down and not even know it. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Jeez, uh, this is going to just be old man hour, isn't it? Um, it is not old man hour. You are not a dad. <laughs> well, let, here, here's my bit. Here's my like, well, how about this? Um, uh, here in Portland, there's a constant tally that is run up by one of our local alt-weeklies alt about yeah. how many pedestrians are killed. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and it is like, it's at the highest it's ever been right now. Uh, and, and... I think about it all the time when I'm out at night. I'm like, oh yeah, that person is totally like putting themselves at risk of getting hit by a car or, Mm -hmm. or I need to be careful because of it, you know? And it, that is not shit that I think I, I didn't think about it when I was 12, you know, there were probably a lot of near misses. So this is part of why paper girls appears to be such a successful story 
Mm. Like baked into it are these things that like you and I just talked for, you know, far too long about this one small piece of the story of the book. Uh, So to try and get us back on track, I'm going to use this quote from Vaughn talking about story structure. He says, I never like to go into a story unless I know how it's going to end. There's always the fear that maybe people won't respond to this book, but it seems like our sales are already strong enough. So when they started with Paper Girls, they knew how they were going to finish it. They knew it was a, not a one-off, but they knew that they weren't trying to create a series that could go on forever. They were doing one big story, but not an epic. They wanted to do a long story. So it would be easy for me to go, well, yeah, but you're Brian K. Vaughn and like you're already like kind of a rock star in comics, except he has had an instance where he launched an image creator owned book and it, it, it wasn't a rousing success and they only did one volume and stopped. Have you, it's called We Stand on Guard. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. It's fun. Um, it, it is about a Canadian dystopian future in which people ride around in giant mechs and fight each other. And uh, it's drawn by Steve Scrochi, who was a big artist in the 90s, but more recently has been like a concept artist in Hollywood for the Wachowskis. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I I think I I like to point out moments like that because it seems like it's really easy to be like, oh, Brian K. Vaughn, whatever. Like you just like printing money, you know, but like even a guy like him has to think about what the market's going to respond to. We're going to talk about the numbers later, and it, they're a sobering set of numbers for the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so last couple pieces of the sort of the ideas behind the book. Uh, Vaughn says, America is a car culture. We've always associated automobiles with freedom, and bicycles are the starting point of that. He calls them the training wheels of uh, you know car freedom. But oh, man. the like, idea of having a vehicle as opposed to just being out... Um, walking around is a sense of freedom. So these kids, they get their bikes, they start working, they are hitting autonomy Mm -hmm. at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And that age is is an age where something like your mom being a drunk, your stepmother being a drunk is traumatic, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to a problem that we're all trying to work through here, you know? And uh, he talks about this stuff that is, for a 12-year-old, epic, right? Mm -hmm. Like having a bicycle, having family trouble, um, being afraid of the teenagers, that kind of thing. Here's how big big of a deal bicycles were when we were kids. And I, I don't know if this is something that can be articulated in another way, but let me try. Do you remember mags or those discs? that we would get instead of spokes? No. Maybe I am just younger enough than you that this was a big deal with my yeah, age I would, group. I would believe that, yeah. Um, mags were like these these like really um, highly dense constructed plastic or like fiberglass uh, things that were put in your wheels instead of the spokes. Now. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, the yeah. discs were like giant shields that were put over them and it was essentially an accessory it didn't like make the bike go faster or anything but that was like 
a huge deal when I was a kid if you had mags or not. And like I remember begging my parents for mags for my birthday one year. <laughs> and did you get them? I got I got one. Nice. <laughs> I had a mag on my back wheel, but not on my front wheel. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Anyway, I, like I, sh- I should sum things up now at that point. Uh, Vaughn says, this is a book for kids, so I want all of those things. Tears, bloodshed, darkness. It was the stuff that I loved when I was 12 years old, not stuff marketed to 12-year-olds. Kids always want to reach a little bit beyond themselves. They want to see what darkness and horror the world has to offer. And they want to hear things they're not supposed to hear and read things that they're not supposed to read. So this definitely speaks to like the larger issue of why horror that we end up talking about on the show a lot Mm -hmm. but also i think the success of what we're now calling ya content like the idea that when you're a kid you don't want to be spoken down to you don't want to read stuff that's written specifically for your age group yeah you you don't want what's sold to your parents as reflective of your existence Mm mm-hmm So Vaughn talks about the construction of Paper Girls as a narrative, and he says, actually, since the very first issue, we planted clues all throughout the series for, quote, amateur detectives and cryptology fans out there who wanted to solve the mystery at the heart of the story. We also recognize that the vast majority of readers would probably be less mystified and more like our young heroes have been. Um talks about the way in which he decided to write the characters and how he, he fleshed them out and that uh, like all the other fictional characters that he's created they're combinations of both real people he loves and personal experience and then shit he just made up <laughs> yeah that's the quote yeah. they're a combination of real people I love personal experience and shit I just made up yeah and he says look I respect not everybody agrees with this but I think that writers have a responsibility to imagine and portray people who might not seem like us on the surface, but then do our best to understand and identify with him. hundred percent agree right there. Yeah. That is the key to writing good characters. Yeah. And there's this subtext to that answer that then gets a lot more explicit when he says most latchkey kids in the 1980s were way more independent and less sheltered than the average North American kid today. But I wanted to challenge our protagonists by having them confront a girl their age from prehistory when life was almost incomprehensibly nasty, brutish, and short. So entering into the areas that he just made up was important to be able to compare and contrast right, his characters. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, oh, look, here are these kids, and, and look at their kid stuff, and look how kid-like they are, and look how they're just kids. He was saying, hey, look at these kids and see how they respond to all kinds of things that kids would normally never have to deal with. And one of the things about this story that clearly is magic is that, it I, I said it already, it takes, just thinking about it, takes us all over the place in our histories, in our memories, um, in, in the way we're thinking of our present. Mm-hmm. And I think I think these guys knew that. I think that was part of the the project. You know, I think I think what we're learning here is that's the difference between this and something like Stranger Things. And Vaughn's going to speak directly to that shortly. But I think this is triggering so many memories for us of, oh, whoa, those are things that we did back then. Can you believe it? Rather than, oh, the 80s were such this beautiful, amazing time and we miss it. And why can't things be like that again? 
Uh, also that it's not like, oh, hey, that's like that show we watched or that's like that movie we saw. Mm-hmm. It might reference. I mean, it's hard, I think, to see them all on their bikes and not kind of think of Goonies, you know. Sure. But it's not because it's set in the 80s, but it's not explicit. And there's not these sort of Easter eggs for those kind of media consumptions. There's yeah. Easter eggs for the actual daily life. So another thing Vaughn highlights here, and I got to confess, I don't think I even realized this until he pointed it out, is that each arc of Paper Girls, of which I think there's five volumes, um, covers a different girl in a different period of time. Yeah, that's real explicit when you're like getting the trade paperbacks. Mm-hmm. Like it became clear to me like, oh, here's the here's the next beat oh, of, okay. of a transition. But, yeah. but that's because that's what the volumes were. I read it in into. single issues as yeah. it was coming out. So that makes sense. Yeah. But basically he says we knew like right away, like like because Cliff Chang had been an editor and he was like, I think the best way for us to construct this going forward is to think of it like. We'll, we'll write the stories in arcs surrounding each girl. And then Vaughn was like, yeah, each member of the quartet will continue to evolve as each volume goes on. Yeah. And that brings up something about the working relationship. So Vaughn is the writer and Cliff Chang is the artist. And then there's a letterer and a colorist. But in a lot of ways, Cliff Chang is a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he, when Vaughn went to Cliff, he went with an idea. Uh, he went with um, a sense of how the story would work. But when an interviewer asked, how much of Paper Girls did you have before you went to Cliff? He said, not a lot. I knew Saga was successful. I felt like I had the creative capital to work with someone on something that was not commercial. Uh, I had an idea for uh, a while that involved 12-year-old newspaper delivery girls and time travel. And Cliff was always one of the first people I considered. Uh, And then they connected, and that's how this sort of back and forth, this editorial collaboration yeah. began. You know, Vaughn said he picked Cliff because he was able to draw young people. And then they start talking about how, like, before they even started on the book, they were just pre-planning it. Cliff was like, okay, like, we need to plan it out this far ahead of time. And Vaughn was like, oh, like, I got home from a trip to New York and I realized, like, I had planned the next four years of my life with Cliff. Like, we had, <laughs> we had gotten it out down to the day, and we never he deviated Cliff from it. Obsessive compulsive from the get go. <laughs> um, and, and this is interesting. He says that that created a different writing mindset. Yeah. Um, don't just write when the muse strikes you. You need to be writing right now because Cliff's calendar demands it. Yeah, if it's anything, I I don't remember if Paper Girls was like this, but I think they did the same thing that he does with Fiona Staples on Saga, which was like they would do an arc uh, and then take like two or three months off. Mm -hmm. And and by that, it it doesn't mean that they weren't working for two or three months. It means that the books weren't coming out for two or three months because they were working at a pace to keep up with that schedule. Part of that. Uh, interview answer that I just read has this really nice thing that's different from uh, separate from the Cliff Vaughn relationship. But Vaughn says, I like having an outlet to say whatever is scaring me about my children and my past and my present, and it can be poured into an issue. What drives it is whatever I'm afraid and confused about. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is, you know, artist therapy, certainly. But if that's how he's working, 
being on a schedule that doesn't let him think too much about what he's put down on paper yeah. is what lets that get by the internal sensor. And I think, too, like that is what makes for good storytelling, right? Like if you are choosing to address the things we always say like that you're passionate about right but like he's like struggling with these ideas of parenting and childhood and identity and what all that means and he's trying to like work it out on the page there's like a certain amount of energy to that that we feel as readers yeah cliff says it's um you know the heart of the story is brian's need to explore whatever is consuming his thoughts paper girls is about getting older and looking back and thinking about what you wanted to achieve when you were younger. Oh, God, Chris. Oh, God. <laughs> There's this grappling, Chang says, with what's going on in our lives now. And we put a lot of ourselves into it because of that. Vaughn calls it a benevolent midlife crisis. That seems, you know what, like, I'll take it. it I wish I was having a benevolent midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Paper Girls is a, a diary of... Things that they considered when they delved into their youth. Yeah. This is, Vaughn says, what parts of the 80s made us? What did we carry with us? What are we imparting to our children? What have we been able to get rid of? Yeah. And and this conversation that they had turned into the story or turned into the details of the story that they kind of already planned. So we spent a lot of time talking about Vaughn and we'll, we'll continue with quotes from both him and Chang, but let's focus on Chang for a little bit. Um, Cliff Chang is an American comic book artist. As I said earlier, he he's, used to be an editor for both DC and Vertigo. Uh, he's known for working on books like Human Target, Beware the Creeper, uh, Neil Young's Greendale, and just a ton of superhero books. It's funny, now that I think about it, I can't believe I've never recommended Neil Young's Greendale to you, because it's really good. It's really, really I good. Do, I you've, do love that record. You've got to find this graphic novel because uh, it's Chang and it's written uh, by Joshua Dysart and it's just it's wonderful uh, the art is so good inside of it Chang has, has worked on a bunch of my favorite things he's been a favorite artist of mine for a long time um, I will confess to something when I was uh, teaching myself like the different aspects of the art process of making comics mm -hmm. when I was trying to learn how to ink I used to print out Cliff Chang blue lines that he would post oh, on his nice, social media yeah. pages. I would print those out on Bristol board and then I would ink them as I thought they should be inked. And then I would go and look at how he actually inked them to compare and contrast. So uh, with an untrained eye, I can say that the art in paper girls is so consistent and so personal and so interesting and um, there's very few in a lot of comic books. I will have trouble figuring out who the fuck is being drawn mm. because it's like, you know, they all look the same or they don't look the same as they do, you know, panel to panel. Mm -hmm. Never a problem in paper girls. And he's drawing the older versions of characters and the younger versions of characters. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's magnificent. His models, like he's, he is always on model. Like he, uh, that's something that I think is really great about his work is it's like you just said, it's very easy to tell the characters apart. He also does a really good job with the, the quote acting of the characters. Yeah. And he's able to draw fantastical things mm -hmm. in the same style as naturalistic things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, one thing I, I I can't believe I didn't see this mentioned anywhere in here, but when paper girls first started, I noticed this, um, he is drawing just a little bit differently than his other stuff with this book. I don't know if it's a different nib or he's like purposely using something digitally to make his line a little grittier, but it's not as uh, sharp and clean. There are like very clear moments where he lets lines that would normally get erased still sit there. Um, and it's, it's kind of awesome to see how he incorporates that into his style for the story. So let's let Vaughn talk a little bit about Cliff and then let Cliff talk about Vaughn. Uh, Vaughn says, Cliff drew one of my first projects for Vertigo, Swamp Thing. And it was just so incredible out of the gate. I mean, he was so clearly talented and elevated the script and he taught me a lot and I was desperate to work with him again. I recommend that as well if you haven't read it before. Uh, I believe they, they only did two volumes of it. It's not the Swamp Thing that you're thinking of. Um, it's <laughs> okay. It, this this is a series that's about Swamp Thing's daughter, and oh, okay. she looks like a human being, and she goes on basically like a, a a road trip across the United States, encountering all these people, trying to figure out what her relationship to the world is via being sort of like an avatar of both plant life and human life. Um, I don't want to get too deep into this, but. Uh, if I've just read the Alan Moore run, mm. can I jump immediately to that one? Yeah, um, there were a couple volumes in between there, but the essential ideas are the same. I mean, like you at the end of the Alan Moore run, he has the daughter. It's yeah. just in this version, she's a teenager instead of like a little kid. Okay. Uh, now here's Cliff talking about Brian's writing. There's a pacing to Brian's stuff that is cinematic and very natural to me. So it was a lot easier than I expected. It was all there. So I didn't have to spend energy trying to fix things when I could just focus on the characters and the emotion and just draw the scene the way Brian had laid it out, trying to just do my best to keep it visually interesting and moving and do it justice. Yeah, then he mentions this one thing, which I was shocked to hear him say, but at the same time, it's somewhat comforting to know like a guy as amazing as he is has like actual fears going into a project like this he said he was really scared about working on this book when he read the pitch and he said i, I was in the nest at dc he means he was just doing a bunch of superhero work for dc uh and he said to do something like this didn't feel like it was going to be a slam dunk for him and then brian vaughn said the same thing to him they were both a little nervous and so chiang says he thinks that's what made the project more compelling uh, is that there was creative risk for both of them. They were a little bit scared. Chang said, I was scared of drawing 12-year-old girls on bikes. I wasn't sure if I could do that. There was nothing in my career that prepared me for this, but the challenge was exciting. We should point out, this gets mentioned later, uh, he, he never learned how to ride a bike. So mm -hmm. the idea of drawing a series where they're always on these bikes was really intimidating. Yeah, but even more so, he says, uh, if you're going to do anything, there's got to be some risk to it. Mm -hmm. I, I so empathize with that right now in this moment. Like I'm about to open up a completely different sort of professional, not identity, but, um, uh, set of strategies. Mm -hmm. I'm a little scared. I'm going up for promotion and then I'm going to try a new, you know, librarian kind of pattern. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's scary and it's going to stretch me. I'm going to, 
fail at a few things and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's human, right? Like the, yeah. the idea of like presenting yourself with different challenges uh, as, as you get older. Um, he also mentions that like he was drawing from reality and that because from memories, yeah, that like he and he and Vaughn are the same age, which is roughly around the same age as the two of us. Uh, and he, yeah, he was drawing friends of his from junior high school, their clothing, their hairstyles. He was, uh, just thinking about, you know, things like girls he might've gone to school with and that helped him to create these characters. Yeah. I think, I think that if you had not, if you'd not had these characters in the comic book look like real people, it would have become just insufferable so quickly. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. if they were cartoon ish, it would just be like, oh, it just, it just keeps going on and on and on. You know, there's a new, a new damn thing in every issue, you know, but instead they felt real. They felt like real people. And so it yeah. was what's happening to Aaron and KJ and Mac and Tiffany. Um, Vaughn points something out that doesn't get talked about a ton, at least not in the notes for when we talk about comics, Charlie. He mentions that when he broke into comics, it was a time when writers, quote, got all the attention and were the stars. What's that? Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Warren Ellis? I mean, he's talking about the the 90s going into the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So that like writers were the brand. Um, I would say Brian Michael Bendis to a certain extent, too. Um, and so he's, he's saying, you know, that was what the selling point was. That's how comics were marketed. And then he said, my career has been a process since then of me realizing that writers actually need to take a back seat because this is an artistic medium and we're there to serve the artists. And he says, in terms of my success in comics, I'm riding on my artist coattails and I'm lucky enough to work with some of the best artists who've ever worked in comics. Uh, even when uh, Cliff had never ridden a bicycle. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so that they, they talk about that next. They talk about how, uh, yeah, for four years, you're going to be sitting there drawing bicycles and you don't know how to ride a bicycle. Um, <laughs> Vaughn also mentions there's a little bit of a difference between the process that he has with Chang and the other artists he works with. So when he writes his script, he sends it to Chang And he says, usually artists will send me thumbnails back. And if I catch something that I described wrong in the script, we'll talk about it. Cliff never sends thumbnails. He doesn't need to. There have always been books where I would get the artwork back and I'd be like, oh, I should have taken another pass at the dialogue to play off the strengths of the art. There was a little bit of that with Cliff Chang, but at each stage, they worked really well together. And I think think Vaughn is trying to articulate this, but it sounds to me like that's partially because of Chang's experience as an editor as well, that he's like yeah. reading between the lines. Yeah. They, they're talking about all the pieces all together. So um, as Vaughn says, at each stage, this person that I'm working with is going to make my work better. So I can just concentrate on telling the next story because they'll have something when they're finished. This is a, an artist, uh, a collaboration of trust as opposed to a collaboration of contract. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's Vaughn and that's Chang. Uh, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention that there is a colorist and a designer slash letterer involved. Matt Wilson is the colorist on this. Uh, he Matt is one of the best colorists in the, the business. This uh, book is amazing 
Yeah. The the color, it's like it 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 has no comparison to an actual film stock or anything, but the way that he uses those deep unnatural colors, mm. like the the pinks and the purples. Mm-hmm. And I understand that pink and purple occur in nature, but not like in this book. But he makes it all seem so perfectly real and uncanny Hmm. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, He works on a ton of books. uh, And as we'll talk about later, he has also received awards for his coloring. Um, The other creator-owned stuff that I think he is most well-known for outside of this are the books that he does with Jamie McKelvey and, and Kieran Gillen. So stuff like the wicked and the divine young Avengers and phonogram, they, the, he's sort of come up with like a visual language with that group, the same way that he's come up with in paper girls. You know, it's funny, like uh, part of the subtle mini projects within super context are for me to start understanding colorists and letterers and who I like and who I don't like and, yeah. and to, you know, to get an idea that, Oh yeah, they're part of the book as much as anybody. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Will Wilson isn't interviewed a lot in the way that the other guys are, but I think his contributions here are significant in, in like the, the feel of the book. Um, and then Jared K Fletcher did the lettering, but he also did the design. So I think that means like, you know, he, he laid out the interiors and the covers and the typesetting and stuff like that. Uh, which brings us to Image Comics. Uh, we already talked a little bit about them, but let's give Vaughn uh, a chance to tell us about Image. He says, I'm so grateful to Image Comics. It's wild to see these big announcements with Amazon and stuff. I mean, that's the television show they're making. Mm. And Image benefits not at all from them. They take no percentage of any of this. They're just supportive. So I'm extremely loyal to them, but I'm also loyal to the direct market. Now, before we talk about that last sentence, how does Image make money? Do they take a percentage of anything? My understanding is that uh, they they operate on a thin margin, that it's like yeah. um, they make their money back from what they invested in the book, and then pretty much everything goes to the creators after that. I would imagine over the course of reprintings, Image isn't just printing it and giving all the money yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're paying their own salaries and everything and growing the company. Um, but no, I, it, not in the same way that like, I'm trying to think IDW or Dark Horse does, right? right? Like, they don't own the rights to anything, but they have to be, they have to be skimming a little off the top, right, Chris? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've, I haven't <laughs> had the <laughs> a contract with them myself, but I would have to imagine that in order well, to keep the lights get on. get on that so I can find out what the hell is going on? I'd really I'll like to know it. if it's yeah. 45 cents or 55 cents an issue. <laughs> I would imagine that even if I did, there would be an NDA attached. But uh, <laughs> but from talking to my friends who have worked on image books before, I think it, it's, it's pretty much like you pay back what they invest in the book. And if you if you can't pay it back, this is the, the dirty secret about image. If if you don't sell enough issues, then you, you have to it pay it out of pocket. Yeah. yeah. I, I also want to point out, Chris, um, since we're doing super context, you and I are now legally the same person. It's like a marriage. So NDA would not be <laughs> NDAs binding. don't apply to us. That's great. <laughs> so he says, I'm extremely loyal to image. I'm also loyal to the direct market. They did paper girls as single issue comics because yeah. That's what they like, and that's what they thought it would be successful as. They did um, not go for the, um, 
Well, now what Matt Fraction is doing with November, but mm. this was also five years ago, but they uh, they were selling to stores. He says, I like writing something that costs two ninety nine or three ninety nine. It feels <laughs> satisfying. <laughs> well, hold on a second here. I want to unpack this because I don't know if Vaughn is speaking directly to this or not, but... I want to step back and give a little bit of uh, like comics insight into this. Um, I have listened to many podcast interviews with retailers or p- publishers mm-hmm. where Vaughn specifically comes up because of the success of Saga and that um, retailers, a, a big bone to pick with the industry that retailers often have is reliability of a book right so like if saga is performing really well they want to know that they're going to have that reliable source of income get people into the store to pick up the next issue right yeah exactly and so um uh when saga went on hiatus a lot of retailers were like what the fuck because like (laughs) they were like that was like a significant portion of our bread and butter and you're just taking a vacation for a year and a half that's how they saw it. I'm sure that's not how Vaughn and Fiona Staples see it. Yeah. And um, if, if those folks who said that thought for a little bit longer about what they were saying, uh-huh. they would probably be able to work it out. Well, yeah, but there is uh, there is a tenuous relationship between Image, Vaughn, and, and the direct market in that like Saga and Paper Girls subsequently did so well because they performed well in the direct market and those books were being hand sold by people in comic book stores around the country. Then they did well in bookstores. Uh, that is a perfect segue to sales numbers, but we're not going to take it because we have to real quick talk about image and then take a break. Uh, well, we've, we've <laughs> weirdly mentioned images business model before telling you who image are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Image is a comic book company that started in 1992, and it was started by several high-profile illustrators, uh, and they wanted a venue for their own creator-owned properties. Uh, Image is the alternative to work for hire. It was, yeah. Well, it is now, too, but the idea at the time wasn't what... It wasn't the same model that it is now. It was like, hey, we're superstar artists who are drawing X-Men and Spider-Man, uh, maybe we should make some more money off of this. And and let's go make our own characters and not have someone say, you cannot work on this spawn thing. You're going to have mm-hmm. to do what we tell you. Right. So uh, originally most of the properties were either superheroes or fantasy stuff. Now it includes all kinds of genres. There's all kinds of independent creators. I should also say there's, there's like um, imprints within image too that are run by different creators. Um, so I don't, I don't believe this is one of those, but like, uh, Robert Kirkman has his own imprint called Skybound and there's like books underneath that, that he, he doesn't necessarily write, but he get, he skims money off yeah. of Kirkman who writes, um, the walking dead or wrote the wrote walking, the walking dead, dead. Yeah. recently. Yeah. Uh, so image is best known for the walking dead, uh, uh, saga, which we've been talking about throughout this and then, uh, spawn which you just mentioned as well. We- weird to me. Spawn has been going on for like 30 years. It, there's some crazy amount of issues of Spawn that it's been consistently publishing for. Uh, McFarlane sold his soul to somebody. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe it was Gene Simmons. Um, 
the company is currently run by a guy named Eric Stevenson. Stevenson's the publisher. Uh, Robert Kirkman is one of the acting partners in the company. And then various members of that like original group of illustrators are also partners. They recently, and by recently, I think it's in three or four years ago now, uh, moved from Berkeley, California to Portland, where I live. Yeah. Uh, so, so have you plotted out your uh, invasion? <laughs> Do you know which way to duck and dodge? I'm working on going it. Going across yeah. the lawn. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're local here. Um, it's interesting because Portland is like, as some, I, I heard it referred to the other day as Comics Town USA. Um, hmm. Because we've got Image, Dark Horse, and Oni all here. And then there's like just such a large population of, of creators that live here too. So does that mean you're Comics Town and then New York is Comics City? <laughs> that, that might that be works? why. Yeah, because that was the, that was the uh, uh, discussion, which was like, if you're going to work in comics, you should either live in Portland or New York City. Let's take a break. Chris, you and I run a Patreon-supported podcast. We do. We do. Uh, we have people who support us by pledging a small amount of money each month to keep the podcast rolling. Oh, we're in a strange position now, though, because what we're doing is sunsetting our podcast. We are. And yet we are still going to run our Patreon campaign after we stop producing regular episodes. We are. And so what this means <laughs> is that. Through May of 2020, if you're a patron of this show, your support is going to do things like help us pay for our hosting fees, cover our expenses for our media artifacts that we're researching, and maintain our recording setup for better production. In fact, I believe Charlie is getting some new equipment as we speak. I sure am. I'm going to get myself one of those fancy mixers. When we cease production of the regular episodes in May, however, the Patreon support is going to keep the RSS feed active and up for discovery purposes. We could make it free just to patrons, but then new listeners wouldn't be able to find it. And so we're at, we will ask for a dollar a month from each of our patrons to keep the feed going. In return, we're going to give you a mini episode once a month still. Yeah. Now, if you want to join the Patreon right now, several levels of support you can give and a bunch of rewards like outtakes, uh, bi-weekly bonus mini episodes and the monthly super king context episode this february we're doing silver bullet yeah and we're headed like that bullet towards maximum overdrive <laughs> at the very end of its run it's speaking of uh skepticism of nostalgia yeah <laughs> <laughs> we want to say right here and now thank you to all of our patrons who are helping us keep the show going now and have kept the show going and expanding and changing and transforming and just becoming something that I, I promise you, Chris, I will look on with uh, nostalgia and happiness for most of my life. Oh, that's very nice, too. So why don't we thank them personally and then we can get back into being skeptical about nostalgia. You're not going to ask me why it's only most of my life and not all of my life. Oh, I know why. Because your life's going to end pretty soon. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Thank you, too. Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bong Man, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovenich, 
Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, Cliff Landis, Coco, Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, Gregory C. Giordano, Ira James, Udiskin, and Jason Puckett. Thank you also to Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Hunta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvola, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, and Luigi Oswego. And thank you to Melinda Hale, Miriam Meany, Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bowe, Philip, who has a last name, R.M. Rhodes, the podcast Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, Roman Marichick, Romantic Placebo, and Ron Billado. And thank you to Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Tara Meshack, Thomas Tremberger, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan. If you would like to be part of our Patreon and keep Super Context going for these final months, go see us at patreon.com slash supercontext. And we're back. Chris, I got to tell you, the... Um the sales numbers on the individual issues of Paper Girls was one of the more shocking surprises of this episode. Yeah. Well, let's remember that these numbers that we're about to go through are direct market sales only. And the other qualifier is that these are not sell-through numbers. These are numbers that mean the, these are the amount of copies that were sold to stores. We don't know that these stores actually moved them all. Um yeah, that second part makes it even worse. <laughs> it does, yes. But we also have to remember that in parallel to this, there is the book market and the digital market, and that yeah. we don't have access to those numbers. But roughly from looking at like percentages over the last couple of years, the book market is, in some cases, roughly equivalent to the amount of sales that you're getting in direct market. Uh, not necessarily book to book, but but in terms of just overall spending. And then the digital market is 10% of the entire uh, publishing industry for comics. I will remember all of that, Chris. It is still fucking shocking <laughs> that the first ep- uh, first issue of Paper Girls sold 75,000 copies. 75,585 copies. That's great in it's comics. That's great. That's a good comic. <laughs> yeah. The second issue sold 46,000. Yeah. It means 30,000 people were like, eh. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got the first one, and I'll get them to sign it someday, and then it'll be a collector's edition. Or I'll wait for the trade. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Like, I know that I do this. I'm like, I don't want single issues. I'll wait for the, the collection or something like that. Yeah. But still, the drop from the first to the 13th issue, it went from 75.5 to 28,000. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. still good. It's still in, good in the industry. Yeah, it started big. Um, by the time yeah. we got to the end of the series, the thirtieth issue, the sales on that were nineteen thousand three hundred and forty-two. So issue one, Brian K. Vaughn, Cliff Chang have a new series out, seventy-five thousand issues. At the end, to a strong, consistent, and satisfying series, less than twenty thousand. But let's step back and examine our own buying practices here. Because I, yeah. I I can look at how I read it and absolutely see. Uh, I bought it in single issues digitally 
over the course of four years. And uh, I stopped buying those single issues with the last volume because all of the image books became available on Hoopla through my library. And I read the last volume of Paper Girls through my library. Right. How about you? Um, I didn't know about this until it was over. <laughs> so I borrowed the trade paperbacks from the library. Yeah, but you know, like, if you still buy them today, they still get money from that, right? It's not like you, they have I'm to be actually, working on it. I've got them on my wish list, and I'm hoping someone will buy them for <laughs> me for my birthday. But this is my point, right? Is that, like, um, I don't know that you and I are necessarily, like, a, a, like a great model for how people interact with the no, direct market. No. But, you know, there are a lot of other options than going into a comic book store and buying the single issue. There are. I just, you know, I think this happens most times we talk about a comic book that's really good. I just think like, Jesus Christ, didn't, didn't, didn't you fucking people, comic book <laughs> readers, didn't you support this and do more? Oh, no, of course not. This is a reminder that there's only so many comics that any one person's going to buy. That's true. There's too. only so yeah. much. Yeah, this is not, you don't subscribe to Image and then get to check in on whatever show or, you know, you, you know, like you would if you belong to Amazon Prime or uh, subscribe to Netflix. I mean, people are making purchasing choices very specifically. Yeah, this, let, let me say, I am right there with you. As a creator, one of the things that is the most frustrating to me is how hard it is to get someone's attention to read your book. Um, this book is lucky in that it already had two creators with name value on it. And that I think like drew more than what you would see, right? Hence the like 75,000 out of the gate. Yeah. Um, but people buy what they know like that is just as as shitty of a of a, not, of a of a it's not shitty at all it is a strategy i think all the time chris about how if you did not have a name coming off of stuff to blow your mind the super yeah. context would not have nearly oh for sure as many listeners as it does yeah i would say yeah yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Not that anyone who was listening to Chris on Stuff to Blow Your Mind was like, oh, I will dumbly follow him to the next podcast. Right. But we got enough people who checked in to get a percentage of listeners mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. your earlier works that we could continue. If it had been me and some jackass who was not you. <laughs> oh, okay. Just as long as we're establishing <laughs> that I'm also a jackass. Yeah. No, just like, yeah, what you know is the easiest shorthand. Yeah, totally. Especially when there's so many options available right now. Yeah. yeah. And like, like I was talking about this with another comics creator the other day. I like to assume that most people go into a comic book store or a convention the way I do. And they're like, I want to find something new by somebody I haven't heard of before uh, so that I can support them and I can experience like a new story that I haven't heard before. Right. Uh, that's not how, how most people do it. Like they're walking in. What's the Joe Beal thing that he says over and over and over again in that book about publishing is that like, um, book publishing is about an emotional promise yeah. to that. Like you're going to give them an emotional payoff and that you have to hold up on that promise over the course of the book. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, so those are the numbers. Let's move on to awards. Nice to see that it did win some awards. Lots. Yeah. So uh, the book itself got best new series from the Eisners. It also got best penciler and inker, uh, which is that's one award with Chang. Uh, Wilson won best colorist twice while this book was coming out once in 2017 and once in 2019. And Vaughn won Best Writer as well while it was coming out in 2017. The first volume of Paper Girls was shortlisted for a Hugo Award in 2017. See our episode about the Hugos. Yeah, right. (laughs) So it jumped from the comic book scene to science fiction as a whole to get that uh, shortlist for the Hugos. And then it has just been announced that it's going to be a TV show. So... I think the sales figures that we saw for the single issues, we we also, we didn't mention the numbers that we had for the volumes, like when they came out, but like the trades did somewhere around like 13, 16,000 until the last one came out. It was around 8,000. Um, those are going to jump significantly yeah, when this TV show comes out. Yeah. And there's these big trade, uh, not trade. There's these big hardcover collections. Oh yeah. They do like omnibus one and two, three yeah. and four, five and six. Those are the ones I would like on my shelf. Those are the ones. uh, Are those uh, to scale with Chang's original art? I never saw the original art, but they're bigger. They're they're more like a stray bullet size than they are a trade paperback size. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd like to get a hold of those too. Um, So this TV show, Amazon has it. Uh, This is what we know about the project so far, which is in pre-production right now. Legendary Television and Plan B have gotten together to to put out this television show. It's going to be distributed on Amazon. The showrunner is a person named Stephanie Folsom, who co-wrote Toy Story 4. I know you have opinions about Toy Story movies, so is this a good thing? I don't know. There's been quite a lot of talk, and by that I mean two parents told me <laughs> that Toy Story 4 had a weird disconnect from one two and three. Oh, okay i i can't speak to it i've seen a few of them but i don't know which ones they are what order they were in uh <laughs> but yeah so stephanie Folsom is the is the showrunner uh and this is going to be the first project that is part of vaughn having a multi-year overall deal with legendary entertainment um and Folsom is also expanding her relationship with Amazon because she is also a consulting producer on whatever this upcoming J.R.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings TV show is. Oh, isn't it pronounced R.R. Uh, Martin? George R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien Martin, Lord <laughs> of the Thrones. That was yeah. a joke recently on a on a Super Ego episode. George R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> I um I I want to delve deep into the joke hole of uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, nerddom and and reading, but I I can't do it. I'm exhausted. I am Chris, I'm literally exhausted by Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you watched what 7 seasons of one of them? I've watched all of the movies of Lord of the Rings, oh, you not did? The Hobbit. And I watched uh, all of Game of Thrones. Uh, I regret half of all of that. 
<laughs> do you uh, do you think you're going to watch Paper Girls? I um, I don't know, and not because I'm going to decide, but because yeah. there is so little time for me to watch anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I str- so sometimes we do our minisodes, and I keep track of what I'm reading, watching, listening to to put it into the minisode, and some sometimes. It's like, oh, it's over Christmas. So, yeah, check it out. I read like three books and I watched five television shows and saw four movies. And sometimes it's like this week where I say, oh, did I already talk about that? Yeah. Oh, okay. When did I watch that? Oh, well, I guess <laughs> I guess I'll talk about the kids movie that I watched. You know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, so I, I just want to. If I get a chance, I will sit down and watch it yeah. right away. There is nothing about Paper Girls being You'll made give it into a, a television show that I don't like. Yeah, right. Now, if it turns out that it looks like someone said, ooh, how would J.J. Abrams do this story? <laughs> I might I might pull back because that's not the style of this book. You're right. And um, that is the thing that I, I guess I was trying to get at with these adaptations, right? Is that more and more often because of how much content there is available both on television and film through streaming services – we're getting comic book adaptations of things that we wouldn't have before. Yeah. And uh, this is nothing about Paper Girls. I know nothing about it. But my example I'm going to go with is Lock and Key just came out two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. And um, we di- we've done an episode on that graphic novel series. We both love that. Um, that TV show was not for me. And, like, I watched the first episode and was just like, how did you, how did you get this so fundamentally wrong uh uh, wait and it's not you mean exactly why did you decide to do this differently than i expected exactly exactly (laughs) that is exactly it right it's not that it's wrong it's that it's not for me it's for somebody else and uh paper girls i wonder you know it could it could very well be the same thing so um yeah yeah vaughn has something to say about this he says i'm lucky enough having worked in film television and comics humble brag that when I come up with an idea, I just decide from the beginning, this feels more like a TV show. This feels like a comic. It's never like, oh, this would be a great movie, so let's do it as a comic first and then try and auction it. That seems like a terrible way to go about things. This is meant to be a comic. There are things comics can do that other mediums can't. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, for sure, and we've talked about both these things before, that comics is a unique medium, but also we talked about it earlier this episode, right? Like that Vaughn always says that. And and yet like everything but saga has been adapted at this point. So, but I think you're right. I think he doesn't go into it intending for them to be adapted. It's just like, sure, I'll take this money from you. Well, he even says um, that I, if I want a big double page spread of dinosaurs fighting in a city, I never have to say, Ooh, there's no way we could do that on a TV budget if he's doing mm-hmm. a comic. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's meant to be a comic so they can do all those things. Now, when it goes to Amazon, who knows what the budget will be and who knows how they will transform yeah. the concept into. Like, it'll probably be incredibly difficult to do that um, shifting perspective issue that comes late in the game mm-hmm. where you know double-page spreads show simultaneous action that's happening in four different times yeah you know but yeah. all focus on the same thing so who knows how they're going to work that out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um 
let's move on to representation and diversity because there's a lot to talk about here this with is that. gonna be a kooky part of the episode yeah so um so this is a book uh first of all that is created by an asian american and uh character media had done uh some research into this and they found out that when this book came out uh in 2018 that three of the top graphic novels in the market according to diamond were created by asian americans and this was one of them um so and saga was another one and the third was monstrous which I, I think i've recommended to you before that's a cool book as well um although probably not for you i don't yeah. i don't think you'd be into it what's interesting is that brian k vaughn um you know a very white guy it's his uh artistic collaborator who is the asian american part of mm. both of those big graphic novels cliff chang and fiona staples which makes me glad that uh, we had that kind of reframing of the writer and the artist mm-hmm. and that we mentioned it early on because it's not, oh yeah, Vaughn got an Asian American artist mm. to do his comic book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both of those comic books, both of those series are understood as equal collaborations between a writer and an artist. Well, the, yeah, and as we're about to talk about, there are other issues of representing marked states here that that the book doesn't you know, address necessarily. And, and these guys are aware of, so this is a book that's about all female characters and it's written and drawn and colored and lettered by dudes. Um, and they have an interesting conversation in the interviews about this. So, uh, first of all, Vaughn starts off by saying like, we can do anything we want at image. And this is the kind of book that like, if you had pitched it elsewhere, if you had said, Hey, it's going to be a book that's all about, uh, non-sexualized women, little kid characters. Uh, most publishers would be like, "Yeah, no way." Uh, well, and and he even sort of points out, it's like, "Yes, us two middle-aged dudes uh-huh. are going to write some twelve-year-olds." That it automatically makes some people say, mm, "Why would you do that?" <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he he says himself, Vaughn says, "I tend toward writing female characters." When he was writing Runaways at Marvel. Uh, it was unusual because Runaways only had one or two male characters and five female characters. He said there was a lot of conversations about that when Runaways was coming out and that the people at Marvel were like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work or not. Um, <laughs> and then he said, usually in comics, you have one token female character and that gets boring to me. And he said they'd seen it so many times before and he wanted Paper Girls to be an opportunity to write about four kids in 1980s Cleveland. Um, yeah, because this could have been Paper Boys. Yeah, yeah. This story could be Paper Boys with just a few story changes, um, but it wouldn't have nearly the same vibe or or set of concerns as it does because it's Paper Girls. Yeah, he talks about how he was inspired by actual Paper Girls uh, in in Cleveland one summer that he saw them just show up, and he says. All the previous paper boys became paper girls, and it was a movement where a young women sort of said, oh, wow, we can do this too. And it was cool and strange to see, quote, as a lazy 12-year-old kid who just sat inside playing Nintendo all the time, while these hardcore gangsters woke up at 4 a.m. to deliver papers and shake <laughs> down adults for money. He calls the paper delivery kids hardcore gangsters multiple times yeah. in multiple interviews. Yeah. 
It's very interesting. I, I do wonder if that's what he thought at the time or if that's how he transformed it to really work the story. <laughs> or that just speaks to Cleveland. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing that Vaughn said is that um, they had to be kind of programmatic about some of the things that happened in the book. Like mm. they had to say, okay, let's make sure we don't write about these paper girls in relation to boys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely Bechdel test uh, successful. Bechdel test, but also he didn't want the story to be defined by them trying for a relationship with a boy or chasing a boy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is that uh, they didn't um, simplify or sugar up the girls. Mm, Right. right? So this is getting to the homophobia. Yeah. One aspect of the story is that um, uh, in the first issue, one of the girls uses a homophobic slur, and you can guess what it is. Uh, And Vaughn says a lot of readers found that horrifying, rightfully so. It is something that I look back on with my own childhood with horror, the ubiquity of how casually kids use that word and unthinkingly. Mm -hmm. So he had to make sure that he didn't um, fall into the trap of making the girls better than the boys that he remembered hanging with. Mm -hmm. He also says that this is something that gets glossed over in what he calls eighties nostalgia porn that is very prevalent today. Uh, Stranger things. We're looking at you, right? Like uh, there's no point where any of those kids call each other a homophobic slur in stranger things. Or other slurs that probably got tossed around. Yeah. And like, I can tell you growing up in the eighties, that was commonplace you know yeah. and it was uh uh yeah yeah it, it, it it's disturbing when you think about it now um and so i think in this is another one of those issues where it's like god like we need a shared language to talk about how we do representation and diversity in storytelling because you've got some readers who are like hey there's a homophobic slur in that comic book i'm triggered yeah. and i'm offended and he's saying Yes, but that's what actually happened at that time, and we need to address that and not pretend like the world was something it wasn't the way we're doing in Stranger Things. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you, you loaded the deck there a little bit, even as you gave that example. I did, of course, because I have opinions about this. Yeah, but. and so the flip side is um, there's no need for you to represent what is problematic and hateful right now yeah. in your work for no reason. And he doesn't. I think in Vaughn's case... I know, but I'm just saying that's the argument. It's not, I'm triggered. It's more like, hey, you put this in here. Yeah. This says that, it says that word. It shows this act. You're doing it. And that word pays off over the course of the entire series. Like that. That's a storytelling arc. There's That's important stuff. Um, Laura Hudson, who we've read many an article by in here, wrote about Paper Girls for Slate magazine. And she said, I guess Slate isn't a magazine, is it? It's a website. Um, no, it's an online magazine. What do you okay. want? <laughs> I want print. I, you know, and look, we're using that word because yeah. magazine, of course, is the word we were talking about this whole time. Uh, Laura Hudson says the thing that's different about Paper Girls is the all-female cast. And it's different from all these other 80s adventure stories that we're so used to. It's centrally concerned with the lives and relationships of adolescent girls this is an unfamiliar site in the comics medium. Uh, the, the, she says the entire medium has historically felt like one long failure of the Bechdel test. If anyone 
doesn't know what the Bechdel test is. To sum it up, it's the question of, are there more than one female character in the work and do they interact in a way that is not defined by their relationships to men? Hudson also points out that the the other thing here is like none of these girls are sexualized. There's 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 no point where these four preteen girls are, you know, talked about in terms of well, their their sexuality is talked about, but yeah, they're I was waiting for you to finish before yeah. I jumped in on that, but yeah. they're not um, the representation of them, the portrayal is not sexualized. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't get Michael Bay style hot pants shots. Yes. But they are sexual beings and they acknowledge sex or acknowledge attraction, kissing. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's there, but it doesn't seem to. Now, as a guy reading it, to me, it never seems to be in some way stealth kind of pedophilic. Pornography, yeah, right, right. Which is, I think, what some people are worried about. And then an, an interviewer actually just straight up asks them and is like, so one thing that people might be a little uncomfortable here is the fact that you guys are middle-aged straight guys writing about 12-year-old girls. Was this something that you considered when you started writing it? Chiang talks about how um, he says, you know what, we had blinders on, and that was our privilege. Uh, he said they, they got done with the pitch and they were putting it together and he showed it to his wife and she said she loved it too. There was, there was yeah. no point in which like she was it? questioning Go for it. it. Yeah. 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 Um, but now he says, you know, now that's done. He says, if we'd thought about it more, maybe the team would have been different or maybe we would have gone with a different story. And he said, the primary audience is probably younger female readers and Vaughn says himself, too, he says, I don't know if I would have pitched Paper Girls specifically to the all-male team of Cliff, Matt, and Jared. Probably not nowadays. I guess part of it is that one of this is one of the first books I've worked on that hasn't had a collaborator who also happened to be female. And it just, he, he literally says the same thing. He's like, yeah, I just wasn't thinking about it now, until Chris, afterward. Do you feel, do you feel like, because it's five years. Mm-hmm. That's like hardly any time so he says nowadays i mean do you think that this is saying like me too makes this something that we should have thought about or do you think i'm five years older i would have noticed like i think no i think so i think me too is not is a term that doesn't encapsulate everything that we're talking about in terms of how storytelling handles uh diversity um but I, I think that the last five years have been one in which a lot of unmarked state writers like Vaughn or, you know, guys like you and I have like had to reckon with this and, and kind of say like, oh, this is something I need to be thinking about. This is something I need to address. I think that might be true. I, I do have an, an alternative idea about it that I think also might be true. Okay. Because Vaughn tells a story about how when he showed the work, the actual book to his wife. Yeah. She went, oh, because the pictures of them, the four guys who worked on the comic were all (laughs) together in the back of the book. He was like, oh, this is a little weird. These guys in the back of the book. He said he compared it to the Tumblr. Congrats. You have an all male panel. (laughs) So I almost wonder if just having gone through the process of experiencing that disconnect when it was completed and public. 
mm-hmm. might be the change that they're referring to. Like, oh, mm-hmm. now that I've done it, I would think about it again. I think so too, and I think that uh, he also admits to that it's it's like a thing that like they only realized after it was already done, and then they were already in the process of doing yeah, it's it. Yeah, like, hey, we're doing it. Yeah. Um, he said, yeah, but then I realized I was an idiot and I didn't think about the optics, much less the ethics of, of this book, but the, the ship had sailed. I do. I feel like he's being a little bit harsh on himself, sort of like by not thinking about the optics and Mm -hmm. the ethics. Mm -hmm. That's not idiocy. I mean, it's privilege, but it's also, I think, benevolence, not benevolence. It's like innocence, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and I, I think that speaks well of them in a way that they didn't start freaking out like, oh, you know, I don't know if we should do this. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, let, let me put it this way, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I'm, I'm actually working on like I'm writing something about it this week, just like a little nonfiction thing. Um, and you are going to be bored with this because you've heard me rattle on and on okay. about this. I'll just take my headphones off for a minute. <laughs> Uh, we don't have a shared language in how we discuss representation and diversity in narratives. Uh, everybody is arguing about this right now. American Dirt is the like is the really strong example that, as we are recording, is currently being fought over in social media and in the public. Um, a year from now, it'll be something else. And I think in order for us to critically examine these issues and tell stories better and have we need to have some kind of like a rubric in order to assess the quality of how creators are approaching representation in their writing and um i i would advocate for the book that i've talked about for the last i don't know six months on the show which is writing the other by nisi shawl and cynthia ward i think they they make a strong argument for uh People like Cliff Chang and Brian Vaughn should tell stories about four 12-year-old girls because it makes them get outside of their own experience and think about the perspectives of other human beings and presents those to readers who maybe haven't seen that before, like Laura Hudson, who's saying, hey, I've never seen somebody do this before. Yeah, Um, that's the good side of it. I mean, the bad side of it is the idea that, um, you know, this story... Uh, has been, you know, this uh, check mark has been made yeah. by an all male team on a, you know, the next time someone tries to pitch a uh, four girls go on an adventure time travel wise, someone's mm-hmm. going to say, oh, well, I mean, is this paper girls again? Yeah. So yeah. that's sort of the why are you doing that? But Chang said that, you know, as soon as we realized, oh, we've set ourselves on this path. They started thinking more about it. They tried to be conscientious, make sure that they weren't um, making the the characters speak some kind of, you know, Chang Vaughn philosophy or, mm-hmm. you know, try and give them things to say that uh, was important to them theoretically. You know, uh, he, he, the quote from him is, I think there's a difference between writing a story about these girls and speaking for them. Mm hmm. Yeah, and then Vaughn ends this topic by talking about the TV show. And he says, it's actually heartening for me to know that as the TV show is coming to life, it's going to be primarily made by a female team. Uh, And he said, so that's nice to see. It's also nice to see how many readers happen to be women and have responded positively to this book. So he feels like he's heartened by that process. 
Um, and he says that hopefully that doesn't put people off and make them seem like they're a bunch of carpetbaggers trying to come in and talk about what the experience of being a 12 year old girl is like. Uh, that's a very difficult um, analogy for me to <laughs> parse. I mean, there's a lot of, it is, but you, you know, know what he reconstruction means. Next. I do. Yeah. I do. But you know, when that's you, the difference between somebody who grew up in Cleveland and somebody who lives in Atlanta. Maybe, maybe, I mean, you know, colonizers is what he should have said, but carpetbaggers just sounds so cool. <laughs> um, so we, we've, we've talked about this throughout this entire episode, but let's condense it here towards the end. So this is a book that is primarily operating on the goodwill of nostalgia, but okay, hold on a second. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. Is it Chris? I, no. and I, I want to, <laughs> I want to ask you yeah. quite seriously. Do you feel that? I is don't. that something? Okay. Oh, no. oh, I see. I see. You were, you were creating a character who was going to talk to us about this. Yeah. So this is, this is the rhetorical difference between, uh, paper girls and stranger things, right? That, and we've, we've been talking about it, but like 1980s nostalgia is huge. Stranger yeah. things. It, super eight i'm sure there are other examples i'm missing here or just the reworking of the um the scene that was being defined in the 80s yeah even this uh it's not even out yet the wonder woman movie the new wonder woman movie that's called wonder woman 1980s or something like that it's literally like (laughs) it's a wonder woman movie set in the 80s and like 90 percent of the trailer is like hey remember the 80s crazy right Wonder Woman, it, she's going to look a lot more like Linda Carter. Well, the name? It, it's playing off of the music and the aesthetics and, uh, you know, the, the clothing. There's even a scene. Have you have you seen this trailer yet, Charlie? There's no, a scene where uh, no, dude, uh, Chris Pine looks at a trash can and he thinks that it's art. He thinks it's like 80s art. And Wonder Woman has to explain to him, no, that's just a trash can. Ha ha ha. Okay. But this is what this book is coming up against because I can't tell you how many times articles said, if you like stranger things, you should read paper girls. And I think I might've said that to you when I first recommended it. It is, it is an easy way to get to the the surface of the story. Mm -hmm. It's like, Hey, it's a, it's a science fiction period piece that operates on 40 something childhood memories and then makes a story that is exciting and works. Yeah. Right now. I think the difference though is, uh, and, and you know, I'll give stranger things some props. Like as stranger things has been going on, it has been getting a little bit better about, uh, addressing actual like cultural issues of the 1980s rather than just using the trappings. Yeah. We're giving stranger things, far too much um, shit and giving paper girls far too much sort of like, yes, you know, honor. This is the difference between your starting point being, we wanted to do something that felt like what we liked when we were kids versus we wanted to do something that was like when we were kids. And then here comes what paper girls did. Here comes this Vaughn quote, which throws (laughs) that all into disarray. Cause when somebody says, Hey, why did you want to set it in the eighties? He goes, laziness. 
I just didn't sure. want to do any research <laughs> other than looking at my old family photos. Yeah. Tell me again how he's like, oh, I was going to do it in the 1950s, something called Paper Girls. <laughs> um, he says he reached out to his mother for info about what his life was like when he was 12, and he received a giant dossier in return and was scared by how much information she had collected on him. Chang and Vaughn both made it clear that they were thinking about who they were as grown people and trying to find what it was, you know, what point in their childhood to find them. Vaughn says, I think whatever kind of adult you end up being is largely formed in the year that you were 12. Oh, wow. Which is why I asked you, Chris, at the beginning, what do you remember from 12? Wow. So what does that mean about you and me? It means that I am uh, this this fragile (laughs) trauma survivor and uh, you are just going through life blissfully unaware? I don't know. I mean, my year was the Challenger explosion and we are the world. So, yeah. you know, everything's terrible, but we can fix it, maybe. I yeah. I, I actually think that Vaughn is full of shit. I think that, <laughs> but I do think that that's a true thought. That it's a nice has. quote. Like, yeah. This is the age, you know, this is where it is. I think, um, I think maybe, let me see if I can recontextualize this. I think what he means is it's when you start being aware of the world beyond like just yourself and your immediate surroundings. And 12 is right before some serious puberty stuff, you know? Yeah. So it, it's the moment when you're starting to feel aware of the world before you start going back inside, yeah. you know, biologically. Now the coincidence is that for Cliff and Vaughn, it's the 80s, the late 80s was their defining kid time. And so they went looking not at what were the, you know, what are the things, what are the images? Like, can we have bicycles flying over the trees because that was an E.T.? But more like, what was the story like in the 80s? What was the fiction like? Vaughn laid it out. He said, I think a lot of the fiction that we loved then has less to do with what was in the zeitgeist and just the fact that those weird mid-level movies could get made back then. You could do something like Goonies or Monster Squad because, you know, a wolfman's got nards. Let's uh, stop these... for a second and, and unpack what he means here, though. Because this is <laughs> this is a guy who works in Hollywood talking about this. And I think yeah. you could skim over this and just go, oh, wait, Goonies couldn't get made nowadays? What do you mean? Um this is what we've uncovered in super context is the difference between a $1 million and a $50 million movie, right? Yeah. Is that like well, Hollywood also, isn't willing to invest in those mid range yeah. budget movies anymore. And original ideas, Chris, right? Yeah. Stories that don't have, um, fucking a, a monster squad history. would never get made today. Despite the fact that we can say, Oh, is that's a, that's not original IP. There's a werewolf and a Frankenstein and all that, but it's, uh-huh. it's not like that. And Do you I know why it would get a made? Frankenstein. I should have said a Dracula. He is, a, he is a Frankenstein. It is the Tom Noonan Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that movie, but of course, you know, again, like it, we're right in that age range. Um, but, but no, like, think about it, right? Like, the difference between how Monster Squad was made in the 80s was like, hey, here's this original idea for a story, wouldn't this be fun? Versus, hey, all the Universal Monster characters yes. uh, are, aren't Let's copyrighted, so yeah. why don't we use them? And, uh, ooh, maybe we could make a shared universe out of it afterwards. Chris, do you remember the movie My Science Project? No. Um, this is the one where... Is this a porn? kind of... Yeah, it's a porn. Um, 
No, it was made in 1985. It is um, at one with Back to the Future, Real Genius, and Weird Science, except it is the most um, off the wall, I guess, or the most like the logic of the story is crazier than any of those other high concept ones. At one point, they're racing electricity you know, in the wires to try and stop the alien technology from taking over the grid. And so it's very important that now (laughs) we can turn on the blower on the Dodge charger or whatever um, that we've been talking about through most of the day. It is so much someone's heart. Yeah. And I love it. And it's the worst of all of those. Vaughn's point though is, is that like, that stuff can't get made nowadays because right. of the the budget restrictions. It could get made, but it would have to be um, worked on and changed until it fit. To be either cheaper or more expensive. Yeah. What a studio said, oh, this will work. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Vaughn goes on to say, this would be really hard. You wouldn't be able to make movies like Monster Squad or Goonies nowadays. Uh you have to do stuff that's based on existing IP. He's basically reiterating what we already said about how people want things that they're already familiar with. Yeah. He suggested that that time had inventiveness, craziness, weirdness, and disposable ideas, Mm. which is such an odd compliment, right? Like we've talked about uh, Stephen Graham Jones saying there's permanent horror and temporary horror. You know, you want to write permanent horror. That's the stuff that can actually do the work. But, in this way, Vaughn is saying disposable ideas like one and done. You know, this story's done and we're not going to milk it. We don't right. have to leave any space for the sequel or, uh, or a shared universe. Yeah. Yeah. And I say this as a person who loves Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and El Camino. So there is also another way to do exactly what I just said that feels artistically viable well organically yeah but this is being able to say we're just going to do this and it's not going to turn into anything at the same time that you're waiting for amazon to buy the fucking rights to make the television show yeah it's very i don't know we have (laughs) after all of this talk from vaughn his quote i'm similarly skeptical of nostalgia it's like well okay dude He does unpack that, though. I think there's something interesting here. He says, I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but I worry that we're overly reliant on nostalgia because I talked to my dad and he loved The Shadow and Tarzan and I loved Spider-Man and Star Wars. But then it feels like kids have Spider-Man and Star Wars. Exactly. He says corporate interests keep the characters and the brands alive, sometimes past their relevancy and it's up to people to decide now. So he says, knowing that James Bond is never going to die because there's a corporate need for there to always be a James Bond, that hurts storytelling. It sounds like Brian K. Vaughn has listened to our episodes on Spectre. <laughs> no, it sounds like Brian K. Vaughn wanted to kill a character and they told him he couldn't. <laughs> uh, but he says, look, we need to take a swing at something that's wholly new, things that are engaged with the moment and aren't concerned with being a franchise or living forever. Nostalgia is comforting, but I do think it can hurt relevant artwork. So I was letting myself kind of just 
blah, blah, blah on him at the start of this. So I should go back and say, I absolutely understand this. It is, there's nuance to the idea of a, a disposable idea, yeah. a self-contained idea that's not built on IP that then someone can adapt, but also a, do it in the same way in a different medium, one and done, disposable, finished, mm-hmm. not you know turned into a franchise. But it still feels like, oh, you're going to talk like this while your stuff's being bought. You know, there, while I, people are still yeah. dying for a saga <laughs> television series. I mean, it is very easy for us to be dismissive of Vaughn because of his success, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, Vaughn's an interesting guy to think about when you talk about success, right? Because the things that are supposedly the most successful in his career are the least critically uh, acclaimed. You know, mm. Under the Dome, it has been bashed up, down, and all over the place, probably rightfully so. And I, I, I would love someday to read the behind the scenes story of how under the dome was made and all the interference that went on on a network level. Cause there's no way a show written by Brian Vaughn (laughs) would be the way that it was what the, the finished product that actually came out. There's this great quote from Vaughn that really sums it all up, dude. He says, comic book readers are the most nostalgic people ever. Many of them just want to keep reading what they were reading when they were 12. Again, back to 12. 12 is the number. This is the numeric, numerically <laughs> significant. Okay. But there are some people who just love the medium and want to read something new. That's exactly I think, what I was just talking yeah, about. Yeah. That's someone. And that to me is Vaughn saying both. I want to be that kind of fan. Yeah. And I want there to be fans like that because it's so much nicer to be a comics writer in a. Uh, in a time when people want to read something new that's comics. Yes, but the market doesn't play that way. And he, sure, he knows sure. it, you but, know? Yeah, but he, like that's just, it's idealistic yeah. or aspirational to say something like that. Yeah, I, exactly. I I think he knows it as well as anybody that like 90% of the people who are out there buying comics want to buy comics based on the property, not based yeah. on the creator or based on the idea of receiving something new they've never experienced before. Now we've somehow landed in a place where it's almost like a defense of Chang and Vaughn um, in the terms of uh, nostalgia, but not. Yeah. But we have this, um, this another chunk of an interview where they talk very explicitly about what it is that they're pulling into the story that is relevant to their past and their youth without being that commodified nostalgia. Yeah. uh, This seems to be them doing something that you and I do on the show a lot, which is trying to understand your generation's relationship with other generations in terms of politics and ideology. Yeah. Because we didn't even talk about this in the story. There are multiple generations of people from the future and the past that have their own sort of mission in terms of time travel. Yeah. And they are at conflict. Um, there's uh, the old timers and the teenagers and the paper girls and the prehistorics, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they are all um, encountering each other in the time slip. 
And Vaughn says the old timers were the conservative group and the teenagers were this sort of futuristic progressive side of things. And then he said the kids that are from the 80s. The paper girls, yeah. They're brutal pragmatists because their ideals are more about their friendships and taking care of each other than they are about the politics. Now, check that out. That is what kids right now are dealing with, too. You think so? I mean, if you take a 12-year-old right now, yeah, are they thinking in terms of you know, conservative policies and judges and taxes <laughs> versus progressive ideals and you know, yeah. civil rights? I don't think I mean, that... They're thinking th- about the fact that everyone's fighting. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say is that they're they're not thinking about the actual uh, issues. They're they're probably overhearing the anger that's around them from the adults. Yeah, and and they're getting received understandings of politics like yeah. you know, my kids think about the president the same way I do and especially <laughs> the same way my wife does. Okay. And they have no reason to. Yeah. You know? They think but he's they hot, also, right? Yeah, super hot. Um, but they also think that some people make bad choices and some people think that they're more important than others and they don't like that. That's yeah. their yeah. politics. That's their values. Yeah. That And that's, that is a large part of, of how Vaughn plays things in here. And he, he thinks about his generation's relationship with their parents, which I guess is our generation's relationship with our parents. Um, and how that plays out throughout the characters in here. He does bring up the politics of today and how that shows up in there. He says, make America great again wasn't even a thing when we started working yeah, on Paper that's Girls. that's right, 2015. And he says, I guess I noticed that there was a little bit of danger in people who were pining too much for the good old days. And I remember them being mostly horrific. There's very little I pine for in the 1980s, even though that's where a lot of my creative energy has been inherited from. He says he wants Paper Girls to be a book that is skeptical of both the past, the present, and the future. And this is then where, like, Chang and Vaughn uh, talked about their religious backgrounds. They talked about yeah. how their, their relationship to religion, and they threaded that through the story, too. I didn't pick so, up on this at all. Yeah, I didn't either, except as soon as I started reading about it, it became clear. Yeah. I don't want to get into a deep sort of, here's the Catholicism and here's the rejection of it. Yeah. But very explicitly, um, they said, how strange would it be if our devoutly Catholic selves um, saw us now? Mm -hmm. And also, religion as a sort of constantly crumbling history right is something that they have been dealing with their whole lives well that's i mean you would be able to speak better to it than me but that's hauntology right it is absolutely you know um but my the point i really want to go after is to say would anyone ever say oh yeah the 1980s that's back when we really started to question catholicism (laughs) when you're talking about nostalgia yeah i mean Clearly, you can say like, oh, yeah, you know, there was a buildup. You know, there was certain movements, people like when did Sinead O'Connor um, tear up the picture of the Pope? Uh, but that was that probably is early not, 90s. But yeah, that is not the nostalgia that sells. That's not the nostalgia that you say, oh, yeah, the love letter to the 80s. You know, mm-hmm. something that Vaughn says, please don't write a love letter to anything. I don't want to read it. They're boring. But 
they went after what to them was important, both when they were kids and now that they're adults, which in a way dodged that commodification of nostalgia. In the comic. Nostalgia. In yeah, the comic, yeah, in the because comic. the only people whose financial uh, interests were involved here were the four creators, right? And so they were able to do that so far. I think I'm worried that when big companies like Legendary Entertainment no, and Amazon get involved. You're worried, Chris. You're merely predicting a different artistic experience. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, it could very easily become a less skeptical uh, story about nostalgia is my point. Um, and that's where I want to end off because Vaughn has this great quote about the book and about endings and about their intentions. And he says, there is not going to be a sequel. There isn't going to be a book called Beyond Paper Girls. Or an old timer spinoff. Yeah. And he says, endings are important to stories. Endings give things meaning. So I love just getting it to the finish line. So this book is like the the narrative is done as far as he's concerned. There's another remarkable quote from that same interview. He says, it's cool to have gotten to tell the story. It was profitable for creators. It's just important to me. I wanted it to be a good experience for these guys and not be like, oh, I wish I had done anything but create our own book. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.